Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in bringing your true stories to the page, why not join their six-week online writing a memoir course with exclusive teaching videos, resources, and writing tasks from best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your memoir and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert non-fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing a memoir or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the author and journalist Christina Patterson. We spoke to Christina about her memoir, Outside the Sky is Blue, about working at The Independent as deputy literary editor and a column writer, and about managing a portfolio career today. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Christina, to Always Take Notes. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me on here. I, I'm a big fan of the podcast. That's great to hear. Uh, could we start with Outside the Sky is Blue, uh, your memoir? Could you start just by telling listeners a little bit about the difficult circumstances that led you to write the book? Well, I, I've wanted to write a version of it for more than 20 years, actually. And the starting point was my sister's schizophrenia. When she was 14, she had a breakdown and was sent off to the adolescent unit of a mental hospital. And my brother, Tom and I, she was my she was five years older than me. Um, so we were very, you know, quite small children or young children and didn't know what was going on. And our parents didn't really tell us. So it was years. We knew that she wasn't well, but it was years before it was actually diagnosed as schizophrenia. But it had a very big impact on the whole family, obviously, most of all on her, but on all of us in different ways. And I wanted to write about the impact of mental illness on a family. And then from the time when I started thinking about it since then, in the 20 years since then, she died, my father died, then my mother died, and then in 2019, just before the pandemic, my brother died. Uh, both she and my brother died very suddenly and unexpectedly. So by the time I sat down to write the version of the book I wrote, it was very different from the original book because it was had you know, lots of other thoughts in there, including what's it like to be the last one left when you don't have children, neither of your siblings have children. That's literally the end of the line and the effect of mental illness and how we carry our distress, really. I've always, for whatever 
complicated reasons. I seem to have carried mine in my body and I've had a lot of ill health over the years. I think I'm pretty, pretty healthy now, but uh, I've had cancer a couple of times. I was diagnosed in my 20s with what I was then told was an incurable autoimmune disease called lupus and I was literally crippled with it. So um, all of which makes it sound like, you know, a bundle of laughs, not. I mean, it, it wasn't intended to be a misery memoir. I don't think it is a misery memoir, but um, it's a story of a kind of middle class standard family growing up on a housing estate in suburbia and what lies beneath the surface, really. Would you have published it while they were still alive, do you think? Well, I would have published it. I mean, that was the plan. Um I would have published it. My, I had permission from my mother. My, my, by the time I was sort of started writing it, both my sister and my father were dead. So it was just my my mother, my brother and me. And I probably wouldn't have even allowed myself to embark on it if I hadn't had support from my mother, because I was intensely aware of the agonies she went through, actually. I mean, she was a someone with incredible joie de vivre and an enormous lust for life and many and varied interests and probably she she sort of did more and achieved more and had more friends than almost anyone I've ever met but she obviously had a you know a really tough time and I wouldn't have wanted to put her through more pain if I had thought she didn't want me to do it so and I think at some level she actually partly wanted the story told of the toll that mental illness takes because I think the the caring that is done by so many people is unseen and silent really it's just invisible in our society the state doesn't do much and the burden is generally carried by families so I I would have done it I thought when my brother died for all kinds of complicated reasons I felt as though I couldn't write it anymore and I don't particularly want to go into that I think he'd sort of he had been in favour of it or at least vaguely supportive and then I think he didn't like the idea of it and then he died so I couldn't talk to him about it and his best friend who I sort of um, almost regard as his representative on earth said look I think it's fine I think you can go ahead and do it and and that felt like a benediction so I did go ahead but um I I mean, obviously, in one sense, it set me freer. But in another sense, I, I don't mean obviously that, uh, you know, that there was anything good whatsoever in my brother dying. It was unequivocally a family, a, a tragedy. And it didn't happen to me. You know, it happened to him. But it is absolutely the worst thing that ever happened to me. But um, from a writer's point of view, you know, technically, there is a certain freedom in the family being dead, but I still wanted to honour them by, um, you know, I, I mean, I didn't, you know, the Graham Greene chip of ice in the heart. I think I was honest and fair. I'm aware it's, relatively speaking, a kind portrayal. Um, I have a friend who wrote a, a memoir that has done very well recently, which has got a much cooler chip of ice in the heart. But I feel I've, I feel I've, done what I wanted to do in terms of representing them and what they went through. And in terms of doing the research, you'd mentioned that you'd wanted to tell this story for a while. Had you sort of started to collect the material and, and ask the questions of your family members while they were they were still alive that allowed you to then write the book? Yes, certainly with my mother, um, we talked about, she told me more about what happened when Caroline had her breakdown and 
she handed me extracts from her diary from the time and things like the psychiatrist's letter. Uh, so she gave me quite a lot, but most of it was what I found when I was going through the boxes in my brother's attic. Some of it I'd seen before and some of it I hadn't seen before. And how did you feel about taking on schizophrenia as a subject matter? I mean, there's been a lot more openness about mental health now than there was perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but obviously schizophrenia is a very different disease and, and a, a, a less treatable disease than anxiety or depression, the other conditions that are often addressed in, in books that take this on. How did you feel about kind of approaching that? Well, I didn't, I suppose I didn't ever see it in those terms because I just thought this is Caroline and, um, and this was the label she was given. And actually, I haven't done very much research about schizophrenia. I did, I did read, I did chair an event at the South Bank a couple of years ago with um, uh, Nathan Filer was one of the writers and he wrote a book uh, about schizophrenia. And I was interested to read that because I haven't read anything really beyond I mean, just things I've come across, but I have never actively set out to research it as an illness. I think, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting because in your question, I can hear the sense that, or maybe I'm reading into it, that certainly the discussion has changed and people are very keen to talk about mental health these days, um, by which they mean mental ill health. But mental illness is a whole other thing to mental ill health or at least when people talk mental health they generally mean anxiety and stress and they don't generally mean schizophrenia or paedophilia or uh, borderline personality disorder or you know any other of a number of much more debilitating mental illnesses and you're right that the horrible tragic thing about schizophrenia is that there is no cure you can't just you know sniff some lavender oil and meditate it's not going to go away so it's it's very rare to find a hopeful story about schizophrenia and it's a very, very tough illness to live with. Were there any books or writers that you looked to while you were working on this, on this book that you thought were a, a useful or sort of apposite model? No, not really. But I mean, I've been a, a critic for 30 years, so I've read and reviewed many of the kind of significant memoirs, but nothing that I read specially, no. And what was the experience of doing this latest book compared with The Art of Not Falling Apart. You know, both have these these memoir elements. I saw this um, this brief clip online in which you, you talked about your love of crisps in relation to the uh, the previous film. Um, but, you know, that that obviously came from a different experience from from losing a job and, and so forth. But both in the writing and then in, in the publication and, the you know, the reception of these books, how do you feel that those two experiences compared? Um, well, this one isn't out yet, so, so I can't, I can't, I don't know what the reception of it is going to be, though uh, I've had some, obviously, some nice advance uh, praise. The Art of Not Falling Apart was important to me because it took a question that obviously is, you know, profound for all of us and fundamentally important for all of us, which is essentially how do we cope when life goes wrong, which indeed it does, unfortunately, with alarming regularity to different degrees with different people. Um, and to me, my job loss was absolutely devastating. And uh, I think you know, a career is something you can, if you're lucky enough in the Western world, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, can craft for yourself. It's not something that happens to you. Whereas, you know, a lot of the other stuff just happens to you, the family you're born into, whether people die, whether they get ill, whether you get ill, you know, I'd had a lot of that stuff going on. And it was very difficult. But 
having so the so the, I I don't put the uh, loss of my journalistic career and as you will both know being journalists you know if you're 49 and you lose a staff job as a columnist on a national paper you know you're not going to get another one you know that's it um, so you can cobble together some kind of portfolio life or do whatever you do but you're not going to get a nice salary for doing the thing you did before um, and that is a big loss to face up to so I didn't from that point of view I regard both of them as being as tackling serious subjects and I hope that in all my writing whether it be journalism books whatever I hope that well what I've tried to do and what I think I have sometimes managed to do is to tackle the profound or you know the important stuff with a kind of certain lightness of touch because I do think as all journalists I think think um, writing should be entertaining the experience of reading someone should be pleasurable so um, I enjoyed writing The Art of Not Falling Apart. Uh, it was all probably more, well, I was going to say it was a more journalistic endeavour because it was doing lots of interviews and then interweaving those interviews with my own experience. But both are fundamentally memoirs and both are tackling similar themes. But, but Outside the Sky is Blue is the book I've wanted to write for 20 years. So from that point of view, it means more to me. That was my next question, actually, is why when you were writing The Art of Not Falling Apart, you wanted to include uh, outside voices and do those interviews. Was it at all due to any kind of queasiness about writing about yourself or more that it would just enrich the, the prose to have those outside voices? I thought I didn't. Yes, I, I thought it would enrich the experience and I didn't want it to be. Um, I mean, I'm not terribly keen on writing. I know I've written two, two sort of memoirs now, but I'm wary of the of the you know there are people and very fine memoirists who write memoir after memoir after memoir and obviously as a journalist I'm intensely aware that you know one is probably the least interesting subject on the planet and uh you know there are <laughs> almost anything else you can pick will be more interesting so um I didn't want to make that book about me and I don't see and this book I very much see as a family memoir it's not obviously I'm you know a rather prominent character in it but I don't see it as you know my memoir you had this experience becoming very religious via via a youth group, you know, in your young life, and then and then kind of moving out of that in your twenties. Do you feel that that has shaped your life, um, both being in that environment and then coming out of it in a significant way? And how do you feel it's affected your writing? I think it was a tragedy, actually. I think it. I was radicalized essentially as a teenager, and uh, it gives me, perhaps, in this whole anti, you know, sort of anti-vax debate going on I'm sure I share the sense of you know the majority of people that this is unbelievably irritating and what can we do but I also and impatience but on the other hand having been radicalized I do know how anyone can believe anything and uh, increasingly of course with QAnon and Trump and what's happened to the Republican Party and uh, you know the storming of the Capitol and so on we can see how really anyone can believe anything and I was uh, you're very you know real swat you know sort of straight a girl and I got sucked into absolute nonsense um, so of course it had a very profound effect and one I think was that I was kind of um, in a state of extreme tension because my brain was telling me this is nonsense but I'd been almost emotionally brainwashed I would say into uh, 
into thinking it wasn't or not thinking kind of signing on the dotted line that said okay so now you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, by the way you didn't realize that these would be the consequences but the consequences are a that the boys you joined the youth club to be able to meet and go out with you're not allowed to go near b when you do finally get a boyfriend which you will not be able to do unless uh, the Lord thinks it's a great idea and you can marry this person they will be, have to be a born again Christian which of course is quite limiting <laughs> um, c that you're not allowed to make your own decisions about your future because the Lord Jesus Christ uh, or Almighty God uh, will be making those decisions for you. So obviously it's an effing nightmare, basically. And um, I was in a straitjacket from the age of, and sort of late 14, 15 to 26. And as you know, I, I became very ill. And of course, we can't do controlled studies, but I suspect that my illness and my debilitating pain was linked with the extreme distress of being uh, stuck in this belief system that would drive anyone sane, mad really, but also was extremely painful because I was ill and I kept being told the Lord wants to heal you and I would put myself through the whole humiliating process of being prayed for and guess what nothing happened and then I would hobble out and you know and sort of smile and pretend everything was fine and it wasn't fine so it was a major trauma, a major trauma. And by the time I came out of it, I had missed out on all those significant adolescent years. I had no idea about dating, no idea about men, no idea about growing up, really. So, yes, it marked my life very profoundly. I read in another interview as well that it gave you, in a more in a more positive sense, I suppose, um, an intense knowledge of the Bible, is how you described it, which impacted your writing in terms of uh, and a keen awareness of repetition and the flow of uh, flow of sentences and also a preference for simplicity. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how you think in general that experience has shaped your appreciation of your own craft? Um, gosh, I'd forgotten I said <laughs> You've done very good research. <laughs> but um, I think that's true. Actually, I had a funny experience when I had cancer for the second time. And uh, the first time I was just off work in the whole year for two and a half weeks and partly because I just started my job at the independent and I was scared of losing it um and the second time because I had major surgery I had to be off work for three months so I was quite nervous going back and when I went back it's so strange this and I, I can't explain it but something happened to my writing I couldn't bear polysyllables anymore and I'm still not very keen on polysyllables and if I ever find myself writing a polysyllable I will really try to replace it with a shorter word and when I write anything reviews I mostly review, do reviews these days um which I still don't find easy after 30 years by the way I, I think you know literary criticism is really difficult um but I generally have to use more words than other writers to fill up the space because I do tend to use short words and what happened when I was writing a column twice a week at that point I had a, a full page in the Saturday Independent kind of in the news pages and then a, a lead column once a week on a Wednesday and I don't know I can only assume that something about thinking I was going to die or might well die had some kind of clarifying effect on my prose as well which seems weird but something happened because my writing got um yeah I, I went for this what you might call deceptive simplicity I suppose and that was when I started getting emails from blokes in Starbucks saying your column made me cry 
And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And and I remember many years ago, I have a, a, a close friend, a poet called Mimi Kalbati. She's uh, originally from Iran, but she's lived in, in this country for many years. And she told me many years ago that the reader will experience the emotion that you are experiencing when you write. And that's what I've then found to be true. I mean, you know, I'm sure we all find we're writing something that makes us cry and then you, you hear from something that makes them cry or makes you laugh or whatever. But I, it really became true for me at that point, or rather from then on. And I think what some people don't realise, and in fact, I think, uh, I don't know if I should say this, but I will say it anyway. The, the person who took over as editor of The Independent apparently told someone else very senior at some dinner oh Christina Patterson she writes like a primary school teacher and um or something like that and he just didn't get my writing at all which is presumably why I ended up uh getting the sack just before I was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize and the only woman on the shortlist but hey that's life but I thought oh right so you really don't understand what I'm doing at all do you you really don't understand that um that that is craft that you know simplifying and clarifying is a craft and you know, the, uh, for example, I remember going to see um, the Matisse cutouts at the Tate some years ago, and they made me cry because the kind of ringing simplicity and beauty of them just kind of cut through to the heart. Um, so, I, so I don't know quite how that relates to what you said, except that some kind of, some kind of accelerated uh, transition took place in my writing and I do sometimes notice that there are you know obviously I'm, I mean and, and the versions of the bible I read were not King King James because obviously I went to you know a Baptist church so it would have been the good news bible or news international but I definitely notice sometimes occasionally those rhythm I mean not biblical rhythms exactly but you know I have a, 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 a sort of rhetorical repetition that goes in and, and it irritates some people it can irritate me actually it's like shut the fuck up just stop it you know get rid of it but it's a kind of almost a trance-like thing I can get into. I've got a broader question about memoir and particularly this idea of catharsis in memoir and that you've written you've written about going to therapy and and you know there is this idea I suppose I suppose what draws a lot of people to try and write memoir is this idea they will achieve some kind of catharsis from that. I'm wondering did you feel that yourself and then this like broader idea of, I suppose, some of the potential pitfalls, for want of a better word, of memoir, and that we had Terry White on the show, who, as well as her magazine editing career, wrote this very honest, very raw, also kind of focusing on mental health memoir. And a point that she said is that she would advise young writers to not start with doing that. You know, that you that the, particularly in the way that the inter internet publishing works today, that there is a, a temptation to to wheel out your your darkest or most most visceral experience and and to commodify that at, at the first opportunity what do you feel i suppose about that yeah those two ideas of the presence or absence of catharsis and the the, the potential dangers of memoir as the first port of call yeah well i think i think catharsis is all well and good but it's got nothing whatsoever to do with the reader so if you want to have therapy fine and I have done and on okay you know sometimes it's been extremely helpful and if you want to go through a kind of cathartic writing process fine and there are millions of creative writing programs and writing groups that will help you do that and maybe you will produce work that's publishable and maybe you won't but um, writing as catharsis 
is a completely, in my view, a completely separate thing to writing for the delectation of a reader. Um, that's, you know, that has to go through a kind of alchemy in a way that makes it something else. However, um, that is not to say that writing memoir or anything for that matter can't be cathartic. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you're both writers. For me, writing is sort of my favourite thing in the world and there's nothing to match it. And there's nothing to match the creative satisfaction of having written something you feel reasonably proud of. So from that point of view, I think it is cathartic. And and, and if, you're, if your subject or your material is your own life stroke pain stroke mental struggles um i'm just sorry now cigar can i suggest popped into my head at that point and i thought you know some people slightly do it to excess don't they um then fine fine and if you can if you find it cathartic therapeutic to do that and create something that works for a readership that's great in terms of terry white's advice to readers not to start with that I would go back to what I said earlier, which is, generally speaking, one is the least interesting thing in the world. The world is fascinating and full of people who are much brighter and have experienced much more and done much more and seen much more than we all have. So while, of course, there is a certain interest in what goes on in our own minds, psyches, worlds, lives, I think it would be a great mistake to dwell on that for an extremely long period unless you are have a kind of Knausgaardian gift of making it endlessly interesting and frankly most people don't. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the journalist and author Christina Patterson. You're about to hear the next instalment of our new segment, In this segment, you'll hear previous guests on the show answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the historian William Dalrymple, on the most important trait a writer should have? Um, well, there's all sorts of things you need, really. Um, patience, persistence, doggedness, um, an ability to lock yourself away on your own happily for most of the day without seeing people. I mean, there are people I know who really, really like office life and love being in an office and chatting to people at the coffee machine and so on. In that case, probably writing is not the job for you. Um, I have to say I'm very sociable, but I'm very happy not to see anyone until the evening. <laughs> While I like to get out and leave the house and get on with um, uh, seeing people in the evening, I'm really, really happy just on my own with my work all day. Um, and you need to be modest enough to, and self-critical enough to take criticism uh, you can be very, very talented, but if you don't listen to people's advice, um, you're fucked, basically. <laughs> you know, you've got to uh, uh, try out your work on other people and see whether they or at least a few people that you trust and, and make corrections appropriately. Um, and um, polish, 
and polish and polish until it's as good as it possibly can be and never hand it in with a deadline or because you've run out of money or whatever it is until it is as good as it possibly can be. Uh, and that is the advice that I would offer anyone. That was William Dalrymple. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Christina Patterson. Could we track back now to your early life? Um, when did your love of books and reading and writing begin? Um, always, always. I can't remember what the first book was I read. I do remember my first day at primary school and Mrs. Shawell going something like basket cat and I went home and told my mother that Mrs. Shell had a stammer because I didn't know why she was doing that. I mean, I couldn't read, but I was just quite surprised she took that approach. I went to a very, very progressive primary school in the estate where I grew up, where it was all kind of um, play on the adventure playground and making dinosaurs out of loo rolls and things like that. Um, we had Enid Blyton's at home. I mean, we had everything at home and I read obsessively from as soon as I learned to read from then on, really. So books have always been a huge part of my life. And you then, you did English as an undergraduate and then and then did the MA at East Anglia. What um, what drew you towards that? And how did you find it as an experience? Towards the MA or the English or? Kind of both, but particularly the MA, I suppose. I think, um, well, English, because I loved reading so much, uh, I suppose, which is an incredibly unoriginal answer. But, um, and the MA... Do you know, I think it was almost inertia. I think I didn't really know what to do. And and I was academically bright. And my tutor said to me, um, oh, why, you know, have you thought of academia? And I thought, oh, not really, but why not? And um, looked at some uh, brochures. And um, I didn't know that the course at UEA with Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Cardinal, I had no idea it was this big deal, really. I mean, I don't think the course, I did the non, needless to say, I did the non-creative writing one. So um, uh, along which we, and we had certain modules that we all had to do together as a group. And I wish I could remember more about that time because now I think, God, I was taught by Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter and Lorna Sage. And I, unfortunately, I can't remember anything about it. So, um, but 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 while doing it, I realised that academia absolutely wasn't for me. I, I just... Um, I mean, we did all this sort of Bart and Derrida and Foucault and... You know, I mean, I'd done Sagawin in the Green Knight at Durham. I sort of barely heard of it and didn't know what was going on. And um, and also realised that I was not at that point. Yeah, I'm a very extrovert social person. And that is the, the nightmare of, of writing. I mean, it's all very well where you can go into a newspaper office and have, you know, lovely long lunches and so on. Not that that happened very much even when I went there. But my boss used to go out for three hour lunches at the Garrick every day. You know, those were the those were the real kind of Fleet Street days. And um, so from that point of view, journalism and the arts was great fun. You know, I wanted to work with other people and and academia was just too solitary, I thought. And also too solitary. And for me, too kind of angels dancing on a pinhead. I'm 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 just too I, I'm not good at kind of uh, plowing a lonely furrow. I, I've got the journalist butterfly brain. I'm sort of interested in almost everything except sport so um so yeah I I couldn't do academia but am I right in thinking after you'd studied literature and writing sort of formally you felt 
a bit cowed about your own writing. Uh, I found a yeah, I found a quote that you said after reading Tolstoy. It sort of not feels point it feels pointless, but you know it feels hard to think that you could possibly match it. Oh, it totally. Honestly, it never. It never. Um, I think I did. I, I went to see a careers advisor at at university, and I mean we didn't get any advice really in those days, and um, and and I hadn't really thought about. I mean, God knows what I was thinking about, but well, probably the Lord Jesus Christ, actually, because I was still a, a Christian at that point. I was probably waiting for God to tell me what I what to do. That's probably right. But anyway, she said, have you thought of what you'd like to do? And I said, oh, I'd quite like to be a journalist. And she said, well, that's very competitive. And, and I thought, oh, well, I better not try then, helpfully. Um, so I didn't. Um, I didn't. And I should really always have been a journalist. I mean, it's fine. It all worked out fine because I became a journalist from my late 30s. And, you know, it was great. But um but yeah, so instead I became a sort of facilitator and handmaiden to other writers. And that was in many ways fabulous. I was incredibly lucky. I met, you know, many of the you know greatest writers of the 20th century, particularly at the South Bank when I was there. And um, again, unfortunately, I can't remember anything any of them said. All these people I took out for dinner. It's like, oh, I don't. Anyway, never mind. Um, Gorby Dal and you know Octavio Paz and Sheshlov Milos and it's like what do they talk about I have no idea but um but anyway it was it was in retrospect anyway it was a great thrill and um I was very lucky to do that but certainly all of that absolutely added to the sense that I couldn't possibly do possibly write myself really I, I did start and it was because um my boss said have you thought of reviewing and again, I had thought, no, of course not. You know, I am not worthy. How could I review? But she said, why don't you send um, a review off to the TLS or whatever? So I sent a review to the TLS and, and started reviewing for the TLS and literary review. And then more widely, I didn't know anybody in those worlds. I literally just sent off, wrote letters. It was letters in those days and ended up doing a monthly first novel slot for The Observer, which I did for years. Um, so I did do I did do literary criticism and um, and I did eventually end up doing interviews before I got a staff job at the Indy. But it was all um, interviewing writers about their work and uh, and reviewing other writers' work. So for me, it, it was the kind of huge leap to think I could write something of my own. And also, I had, I'd come from a very much a public service background. My father was a civil servant, my mother was a teacher. They're, the kind of entire extended family on both sides were either sort of teachers or nurses or you know whatever and I think I was brought up with this sense that the in fact I remembering now and I quote in the book a letter my father wrote me when I was at UEA doing my MA and it literally said at the top of the paper um in capitals on blue bezel and bond on rendering unto Caesar and uh, he was basically saying when are you going to get a job love but um he put it in very sort of lofty terms kind of it is the duty of the citizen to pay taxes and you have already had more advantages than most people because you uh, you know not only had the privilege of going to university which most young people don't have and the proportion that went to university then was quite different to now but you then had the further privilege of going to um to do an ma and at first i was you know brought up to believe you know you, you contribute to society and you pay your taxes so anything creative would have felt even though i you know literature was kind of what kept me alive anything creative would have felt somewhat self-indulgent i think i was interested that you used the term kind of facilitator to for those those early jobs and i was struck by i think it's something that julia cameron wrote in the artist's way that this idea that a lot of people with creative aspirations who 
who don't initially dare to follow them do do find or dare or, or, or f- feel permitted to follow them do end up doing these like adjacent jobs. So whether it's being a, an editor, an agent or working in arts publicity, did you, from the way you characterize it, it did sound to me like, is it fair to say that that you kind of were stepping away a little bit from, from what you did? There was a question and not feeling this was a, a permitted thing to do. Yeah, no, I never felt it was permitted. I never felt it was permitted. And what was permitted was to the facilitating role. Um, so that's absolutely right. But, but, you know, on the other hand, for those of us who love reading, for whom it's our lifeblood, it is also an incredible privilege to work with writers. And, and, and I did, as I said, get to work with really, really good ones. I and mean, I think what's re- what, what would be really tough was if you loved writing, didn't feel able to do it, and then worked for, you know, some vanity publishing company and were publishing absolute crap. You know, that would be really tough. But if you're dealing with really good stuff, that's, it's, it's slightly different. Could you tell us a little bit about those uh, early jobs first in publishing at Faber and Faber and then how you uh, got the job at the South Bank Centre? Mm. Uh, well, my so my first job after I worked in a bookshop, which is great, because by that point I was sick to death of studying and essays and just loved lugging boxes of books around. Really, really enjoyed that. Um, and then my first publishing job was for a company called ANC Black who published Blue Guides and Who's Who and things like that and um, it was in a house in a, an office in Bloomsbury and I remember going for my interview and there was um, the smell of filter coffee which you won't believe it but was you know quite unusual in those days to have fresh coffee and there was opera wafting in from I don't um, there must have been some kind of drama studio nearby so it all felt very very glamorous and um and I was delighted to get the job. And and then, it, you know, I mean, it was publicity assistant. So I would have been sending out press releases and so on. But I, but I remember on my first day at work, I had to type something and I couldn't really type. I had done a sight and sound um, typing course in Charing Cross Road where you kind of, you know, uh, listen to headphones and learn how to touch type. But I, I hadn't been very good at practicing and I hadn't really done it on a proper typewriter. I remember my first day typing, I was, had to cut type a comp slip and, um, and I filled up an entire waistband basket with the discarded versions. Like, oh my God, I'm going to be found out. It's awful. Anyway, I was there for not very long, maybe just under a year because I saw the job at Faber being advertised, which was um, a press officer job. And it was covering a maternity leave and I, I, I left a full time job to go and cover a maternity leave because for me, you know, six months sounded like quite a long time when like, when you're 26 or whatever, 25, what I was. And the favour job was great. And then I really did meet, I was working, Robert McCrum was the editor then and I met Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes and all these people and Katarish Guru um, and organised, organised, you know, parties, uh, so that was great, but but not long after I arrived, I got this terrible illness. So it was from that, you know, it was a great job, but a kind of agonising time because I got these crippling pains in my knees and nobody knew what it was. And I, I really couldn't walk more than a few yards. So I would literally uh, hobble around with walking sticks and I couldn't go. I'd have to get a colleague to go and get me a sandwich at lunchtime for once I got the illness uh, and it was a year later I found out that it was lupus but they'd lost the blood test at the hospital and nobody knew what it was so so it was bittersweet because it was a great environment but then I um 
you know, I got ill and was told I had this incurable autoimmune disease and thought, great, I'm 26, I'm unemployed, I'm a virgin, uh, I'm a born again Christian. Well, I didn't use that phrase, but I'm an evangelical Christian. You know, I'm meant to believe that God's in control of my life. Looks like a fuck up to me. And um, so it was a very, very, very difficult time. So what happened, which two things happened that saved me. One is that I went to see a GP who suggested I go to see Mrs. Jones, who was a psychotherapist at the practice. I didn't know anything about therapy. I found the whole thing excruciatingly embarrassing, painful. Um, but I think it was incredibly important. And I applied for various jobs, one of which was um, to be a proofreader at Loot, which was a kind of secondhand car magazine. And at the same time to do uh, a part time role as doing lit so-called literary PR in the South Bank Centre. And thank God I had the interview for that first and Maura Dooley, who started and ran the literature programme at the South Bank Centre and who's still a very close friend of mine, gave me that job and it kind of saved me. And suddenly I was in an environment, I was still in pain, but gradually the pain abated and the therapy happened at the same time. And and I was in you know, a fantastically stimulating, interesting environment. And by that point, I told God to fuck off, literally, and life started to get better. So it's a rule of the podcast, as you may know, that we always ask about money and how it's interfaced with people's writing lives. So for you, as you were finding your way in London, doing these early jobs, facing these health challenges, and then, and then this crisis of faith as well, how did that work financially? And then, and then for the, your career going forward, both as a staffer and then, and then now, how, is it, how have you made it work at those different levels? Oh, I'm a multimillionaire, so it's all fine. Um, so the early jobs were not writing jobs. They were facilitating writing jobs, so publishing and the arts. Very, very, very badly paid, but things were different then. So I was able um, to buy a flat, uh, an ex-council flat in Camberwell when I was earning 17,000 quid. And obviously that would not be possible now. Um, so that was very lucky. And although money was tight, you know, it was fine. I could, you know, I'm very tight, but it was fine. I was never particularly motivated by money and I had jobs. Um, and then I went to the Poetry Society and I ended up running the Poetry Society and had, you know, in arts terms, quite a, quite a decent salary. I mean, not brilliant, but in fact, I actually took a pay cut when I went to the Independent. I actually took a pay cut to go to the Independent uh, from the arts, which is quite something. Um, and salaries at the Independent were not... I mean, all this time I was doing reviewing, but it was on top of a salary. So it was, you know, there was no big money in the reviewing, but uh, I was never well off. But, you know, it was kind of extra to my my salary. And then I had 10 years at the Independent on a staff salary, earning, you know, quite good money by the end. And only because I'd fought for it, actually. It was when I came back from um, my cancer operation and was suddenly sort of, you know, given these kind of, prominent columns and and the editor told me I was his favorite columnist and I thought well in that case why are you paying me like 20 grand less than all the men and um what helped me was um I asked Deborah Orr who had been doing as kind of in a similar slot and I asked her what she'd been paid and she very kindly told me and so when I went to the managing editor and I said I, I'd, I'd like a pay rise and um they came back with a suggestion and I said no sorry that's not good enough 
And um, and then and I waited several months and then the editor called me in and said, OK, we're going to give you X, which was much, much more. It was like 20 grand more than I was earning. Um, in fact, it was and he said, we're going to give you X. And then in a year, we're going to give you X, which was much more. So I was very excited at that point. And then unfortunately, he got the sack and then I got the sack. So the big money or the relatively big money didn't materialize. Um, but that was fine. That was, you know, the only time in my life when I've been had a kind of, you know, really quite decent salary, literally to write full time and to write really two columns a week and, and the, the odd interview. There were times when I was doing an interview a week and two columns a week and that was killing. But there were other times when I was doing less and that was, you know, a great luxury. And then, of course, the great uh, the great kind of awakening of um, you lose a staff job. I never thought when I left the independent, I never thought, oh, let me let me create, let me do the Z list version of what I was doing before earning tuppence halfpenny and scrabbling around for the odd commission. I thought I've been lucky, I've had the best of it. Um, I'll try and do, I'll go and do different things. And I had, I wanted to write books, of course, and that took so much longer than I thought it would because getting ducks lined up is, you know, the right agent and the right publisher and all of that stuff, getting proposals is really, I'm sure, you know, other people do a better job of it than me, but it took me a really long time to get that right for uh, both books. And, um, well, actually less so the second book, but the first one took a long time. And and in meantime, you're trying to earn a living, pay the mortgage uh, with no regular income whatsoever. And it's very, very hard work and very tiring. And I was trying to get a big research project off the ground with a think tank and uh, was considering doing a PhD at the LSE. And I had somebody on board with that who was going to be we going to set up a commission. But for various reasons, which I won't bore you with, it didn't happen. And so I, I spent a huge amount of my energy for more than two years on that and then on another similar think tank project. So lots of things I put time into didn't materialise. And uh, but broadly, broadly, I've lived through my mostly through my writing in the last it'll be nine years next month since I left the independent. But I earn less than I did then overall. But I also have to say it hasn't been a huge priority for me. I mean, for me, particularly when when my mother died and then my brother died. I just thought, OK, I know what I want to do now and it's and it's not really earning money. I mean, obviously, if someone gave me lots of money, that would be absolutely lovely. But, you know, I could do corporate stuff that I don't do. I do some corporate stuff. But um, at this point, you know, the kind of tiny silver lining from having lost my entire family is that I have a certain safety net that I didn't have before. And, you know, nobody was wealthy in my family. But, you know, if, uh, you know, my brother had a little house. And so I have some I have some money as a safety net. I mean, basically, it's a pension, but it means that I don't um, uh, I don't really do stuff I don't want to do if I can help it. And I don't really do much journalism. I've been reviewing for the Sunday Times on and off for years. I don't do much journalism. I do it when I feel like it or when someone asks me, but I can't really be bothered to do the uh, pitching. I I just just hate it. yeah, so so that really. In terms of your portfolio career, then how much time in the average week could you spend writing, reviewing, and how does it work with books and your podcast and the coaching and the kind of myriad projects that you have have going on? Oh gosh, well it's you know every week you think, oh god, where did the time go? It's just not fair. Um, it completely depends. So when I I'm 
obviously like all journalists I'm very good at deadlines so when I got the deal for the last book I I wrote I'd already done the the first quarter in um for the proposal so I wrote the rest of it in about three months you know just very concentratedly and and that was heaven actually just just to write is heaven um but and I've trained as a coach this last year so my plan is to and I've been doing some coaching today so my plan is to get a kind of a balance of writing coaching podcasts and so on so that I get some human interaction and it isn't just you know kind of staring at um obviously some coaching is staring at screen at the moment but um at the moment I would say I don't have a book project actively on the go there's one I want to get on with I can easily get through a week and not really write anything much I mean I'll do a podcast maybe and if I if I do get through a week and don't write anything much I'll be in a really bad mood because because um, because you know it's like the whole reason you have this life is essentially to prioritize the writing if you don't manage to do the writing then it doesn't make you feel good but unfortunately there there is so much there's so much bollocks to do you know just endless endless emails and the social media the nonsense I hate admin you know I just if I put on my gravestone you know she hated admin I just and there's so much of it and particularly as a freelancer so and and yeah so yeah I don't write nearly enough and it drives me mad this is jumping around a little bit chronologically but could we talk a bit about what the experience of, of being a columnist was like in terms of the you know generation of ideas and stuff like that I mean it's sometimes I suppose there's two points I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the first being that the way the media has evolved in the last two decades perhaps has, has prioritized opinion writing over um over reporting and then particularly how that fits in britain which again is a a press culture that traditionally has a lot of opinion and a lot of a lot of punditry and, and things like that did you ever feel that you were kind of under pressure to, to have a view on everything or or things like you know how how did you find con- this conceptual idea of, of being a voice of being a columnist well it is a constant stress coming up with ideas and particularly because you've got to have one big one the weekly column has to be kind of the big issue of the day so I would go to bed you know I'd be kind of obsessively looking at the news all the time and watching news night and reading stuff and then go to bed feeling quite nervous and then wake up listening to the day program you know blind panic what's the what's the main story and then um and then I would send off some thoughts to my editor but then you don't know until after conference whether they're going to pass muster and occasionally they don't and then you have to come up with something completely new at 11 o'clock and you still have to file at 3.30 so it is very stressful I have to say now that I don't do it or rarely do it I kind of think god how did I do that that's so stressful but you kind of it was very very stressful I kind of felt completely sick with the stress actually but um but as you will both know being journalists you know there's nothing like that adrenaline to 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 concentrate the mind and um so it was stressful but exhilarating very very exhilarating and it's interesting because um I don't think we really used the word opinion uh when I was at the independent um can't remember what you must have called it comment it's what we called it comment and opinion to me seems slightly different because I don't really see it of course it is having an opinion but I never know I don't usually know what I think until I start writing well of course Joan Didion said something similar but I mean it's true for all of us really until we start speaking or writing that's how we formulate our views so I didn't you know I would do the thinking on the page I would have a broad 
idea and a rough idea of an argument that but that might change but actually what did change and it ties in with what you said about changing culture particularly in relation to opinion is that when the new editor came in he wanted the headline before the piece was written and personally i think that's a really bad way to write anything because you are developing an argument and the argument if it's any good should have plenty of nuance in it so I don't I didn't see comment writing as expressing my opinion. I saw it as making arguments and trying to widen the debate and bring some nuance and make people think differently. That that for me was the point of it. And I think the way it has often gone, which is I'm going to bash you over the head with my very certain argument is a real shame and very bad for our culture. Presumably as well, you didn't have a huge amount of time to research the research is what you're doing in your own time <sighs> and no then time. when no time no time and then, and then when you actually had to write it was you had to basically rely on what you you already knew you didn't have time to go away and look at things no you have time you know like an hour or two for googling and and it would always amuse me because sometimes i would write write the column and then people would ask me to chair events you know or take part in panels at the house of commons and i'm thinking you do know that yesterday i didn't know anything about this issue don't you but you can't really say that but it's funny how as soon as your your name and photo is above something people think you're some kind of an expert you think absolutely not i think we're we're kind of coming up to the end of our time now but what are your your projects going forward like what are you looking um obviously this this new book but but with these various strands that you're doing professionally which ones are you looking to to really push do you think well, I'm thinking about the book and I haven't told anyone about that yet. And I don't even know if it will happen. So uh, my agent, you know, I talked about it with her and I just haven't had time to explore that. But I really want to. That's the kind of key thing I want to get on with. Um, I do a podcast called The Art of Work, which um, is looking at uh, how people find a degree of fulfillment, stroke meaning, stroke joy in their work, uh, which I think is sort of increasingly challenging in all kinds of ways. And but I find that really interesting. And that relates to my coaching, which is, um, which I'm sort of just getting off the ground. But again, it, it, for me, everything comes down to the deathbed thing, because obviously having, you know, lost my, my, you know, so many people close to me, I just kind of think what matters is, you know, what matters to you, what you make, how you make some mark in, in what, in a way that feels valuable to you on this planet. How, and so I suppose I feel that from a writing point of view, for me, it all comes down to Keats, the beauty and truth, um, Ode on a Grecian Urn, you know, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that's all you know and all you need to know. And I sort of feel that that's my guiding light, really. So that's what I want to do in my writing or anything else I do, which is probably a very esoteric way of answering your question. But um, beauty and truth is the answer. There's no better note to end on than Keats. Um, well, thank you very much for your time, Christina, and wishing you all the very best with those projects going forward. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Christina Patterson. She's on Twitter at QueenChristina underscore and Outside the Skies Blue is published by Hachette. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two month trial to Otter, worth $26 alongside the other rewards. 
Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. It's us again. Uh, Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Christina? Christina's had such a varied um, career through uh, the Poetry Society and only becoming a full-time journalist at the age of 39, plus her books. Um, So it was great to sort of trace that arc. Um, I also thought it was a really interesting compliment in terms of the art of memoir writing, sort of with with reference to our episode with with Terry White um, and attitudes towards writing about yourself. How about you? Yeah, I was interested in the whole piece about writing about schizophrenia as opposed to other perhaps less um, debilitating mental health conditions that, that are often the subject of memoirs elsewhere. And and as you say, also her her compelling personal story from being a born again Christian and getting out of that. And then also interested to hear about the whole kind of national newspaper column game, what, what she felt it was like, and then how she sort of rode that wave and it came to an end and then uh, worked out what she was doing next. So yeah, really interesting episode all in. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us via our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.